Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you all to UCL this evening uh, for one of a series of events we've been holding uh, about the legacy of the Olympics. This is actually the, the fifth of a series of events. Other events have looked at things like um, uh, training and sport, uh, disability issues, and so on. Tonight, we're focusing on transport. And uh, if you're interested in the others, there's one more this Thursday, which is looking 50 years ahead, London uh, 2062, at what we think some, what London might be like in 50 years' time. Um, if you're interested in the others, uh, on the UCL website, we've got um, TV YouTube uh, presentations that you can look at. So please feel free to do that. Um, usual uh, just warnings. If there is a fire alarm, we're not expecting it. Two fire exits at the back, two at the front here. Could you switch your mobile phones off? Or, I've just remembered mine. Do it to um, silent or switch it off, please. Thanks very much. Um, when we set up this evening session, it, it was planned some months ago. Obviously, the Olympics hadn't happened. And at that time, uh, there was a lot of uh, discussion and concern about how the transport infrastructure would stand up in London to uh, the extra pressure of visitors during the Olympics, uh, how Londoners would adapt to that, how freight would, uh, patterns would change, and so on. And really, the purpose of this evening wasn't to sort of do a, a post-mortem on any particular problems that arose on particular days. It was really to say that the, uh, the event, the Olympics, such a, a major event in London in terms of affecting uh, the patterns of activity in London, putting huge demands on the transport network. Obviously, to do that, a lot of preparation went in uh, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of working with companies and so on. And as a result of that, I think we expected that people would actually learn lessons or have opportunities to do things that would have lasting legacy. So really the purpose of this evening, transport and the Olympic legacy driving innovation, was essentially to say, okay, uh, the concerns and pressures of the Olympics has actually forced us to, uh, to make some changes in the way we've done things traditionally, uh, to gear up in a different way. What potentially are the long-term benefits? If, what have we learned that we can actually use in the long term, that we can organize things more efficiently, more effectively, uh, in a more pleasant way, and so on. So that's really the, the context in which uh, this evening uh, was set. And clearly, there haven't been any major disasters, so we shouldn't have to be sidetracked by that. We can focus on the original purpose of the evening. And we've got four uh, speakers this evening. Uh, the first two are in different research groups at UCL, uh, in both casing, cases having very close links with TFL. TFL has provided extensive traffic data, Oyster card data, and so on. And so within the university here, we have a bit more time than they do at TFL to actually look in detail at their data. And the first two presentations will look at some of the early results uh, about how traffic patterns have changed in London. And then the second one will look, look, use Oyster card data to look at how the lives of Londoners uh, have adapted during the Olympics. Obviously, the timing is very close to the completion of the Paralympics uh, just a couple of days ago. So um, the data is not yet fully out. So this is very much um, work in progress. And the first two presentations will show you some of the initial findings uh, of work that's going on to give you a flavor of what's happening. And then having had, if you like, two academic presentations that have taken the data from TFL, looked in some detail, or started looking in detail at how patterns have changed, then the other two pre presentations are more from the practice end, if you like. Uh, first of all, uh, Michelle Dix, uh, Managing Director, uh, planning at TFL, who will give an overview about how TFL prepared for the Olympics, what their initial impressions are of how it's gone, and, and how they see the legacy benefits. 
And then one of the areas that's been, uh, I think, particularly successful has been the way in which the freight industry has adapted to the pressures of the Olympics and worked closely with TfL and others. And Natalie Chapman from Freight Transport Association will talk specifically about that as a case study. Then we'll have an opportunity for uh, questions and answers, which I invite you all to contribute to. Uh, and then we'll close, we'll go over the road, and there'll be some wine and nibbles for you over there. And also, uh, our two research groups, who will be presenting briefly this evening, have both set up presentations over there. There are a series of display boards talking about their work, but also they've got live demonstrations as well. So you can see a bit more about the data they're using and the ways in which they can analyse things. So I'd urge you all to go and have a look at that. So thank you very much. So without further ado, uh, let let me start with our first speaker, who's uh, John Reeds at the UCL Centre for Advanced... Uh, sorry, uh, Andy Chow, my apologies. We, we rearranged things earlier on, sorry. Andy Chow, uh, a colleague of mine at UCL in the Centre for Transport Studies, who's going to talk about some initial work that's been done uh, looking at the impacts on traffic patterns in London of the Olympics. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. So I'm a lecturer. Uh, my name is Andy Chow. I'm a lecturer in the um, Department of uh, Civil, Environmental and Geomatic Engineering at UCL. So um, this work, uh, I'm going to present you some initial analysis of uh, London traffic during the Olympics. Now, um, this work was uh, done by research team of uh, the standard project, so which is uh, so consists of three teams in this uh, teams. So we, uh, myself and Professor uh, Ben Heidecker, uh, is uh, from uh, Center for Transport Studies, and then we got uh, Professor Tao Jiang and her research students uh, from UCL Space Time Lab. And we also have our partners, uh, Andy Emmons and Mr. Uh, Jonathan Turner from uh, Transfer for London. So a brief introduction of uh, a standard research project. So it's a three years uh, EPSLC funded project. Um, so we, uh, we look at uh, the space-time nature of urban traffic data. So it's a collaboration with uh, Transfer for London. So the data that we are looking at include uh, journey times and also uh, traffic volumes, density, etc. So, um, so in this in these studies, we mainly work, uh, look at uh, journey time data. So this is how we got our journey times. Now, in London, there are uh, uh, about uh, 500 cameras, okay, in uh, uh, in the city, okay. They are there for different uh, for enforcing uh, different uh, management schemes. For example, the concession charge and no emission zones, etc. Okay. So with these cameras, so whenever a, a vehicle pass by a cameras, the cameras, cameras will take down the license plate number and also the timestamp. So by matching uh, the, the plate number, we can then derive uh, the journey times of the vehicles. Okay, so this is how we, got, we can get the uh, journey times on uh, uh, the London network. Now, um, this uh, map covers the major roads uh, in London network. And among them, there are about uh, 470 names uh, are covered by LCAP systems, where uh, the, um, the yellow rectangles highlight the central London area. Now, in this uh, uh, central London uh, network, we have a sub-network, so, okay, so Olympic route network. So basically, this Olympic route network covers uh, the major route or the major roads in central London and also the major avenue connecting uh, central London and the Olympic uh, venue, such as uh, Stratford or uh, Greenwich, etc. So um, this uh, uh, Olympic route network, OLN, so 
was uh, closely monitored and, con and, and managed by TFL during the game period. So just to make sure that the traffic was flowing well and also make sure that some, those special vehicles, especially those vehicles uh, such as um, games family vehicles can get to the venue on time. So which is pretty, which is very important. Now, so here is our analysis, okay? So the analysis here, we aim to investigate uh, the impact of Olympics on the London Road Network, okay? So basically, we compare the traffic speed that we collected during the game period, which is from 27th uh, July uh, this year to 12th uh, August uh, this year, okay? So and this is a 16 days a period, which includes 10 weekdays and six weekend days, okay? And we compared this period with the um, with around the same period last year. Okay, so we try to see whether uh, so how does the traffic change? So com uh, uh, compare with the Olympics period and the base case, which uh, uh, from the data that we collect last year. Now, one thing I have to emphasize is that in this data set, we haven't included those special vehicles, games uh, family vehicles. Okay. Now, um, so here is the result. Now, now these two graphs show the average speed that we calculate uh, on ORN, okay? So each figure is essentially, so the plot is the average speed that we calculate over all LCAP links on the ORN network, okay? So again, so we exclude uh, GFE. We don't include, we didn't include uh, games family vehicles. Now, but the plot on the uh, 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 on your on my left is the average over the weekdays, where the plot on my right is the average over weekend. So, um, so what we see is that we observe a, a high speed uh, uh, during early morning and a high speed during uh, late night. So, and then we see a speed drop uh, during the midday, etc. So, this is basically typical uh, 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 London traffic pattern where the difference between the, the off-peak and the midday is more significant during the weekdays, okay? Now, um, the red line is the average speed that we calculate for uh, this year, and the blue line is the average speed that we calculate uh, last year, okay? Now, what we found is that, so, if, uh, so during the games, so the speed can be maintained or even actually higher than the speed that we observed last year on the OLN. Okay, which means the traffic actually uh, uh, flowing quite well. I mean, on this uh, uh, important network. Now, so this is OLN. Now, the result, the, the graph that I show here is the average speed that I calculate on Central London network without OLN. Okay, so so now we understand that we will give a priority to OLN traffic because we want to protect the vehicles on that network. And then now we try to see, so what is the, what, what are the impact that we cause on the, the other roads? Okay, so now the result or the data that we, 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 we observe here is that actually we didn't cause much uh, disruptions on central London network either. Because what we, uh, what we see here is that, so I compare the average speed between the two years, this year's and last year. So what we found is that the speed uh, profile actually are pretty close. I mean, between the two years, which means we don't observe a significant, significant disruptions on uh, uh, other roads in central London either. Um, so finally, uh, a quick one. Well, so with, this is the, the average speed that we observe 
on outer London. So basically, these are the roads out of the circular road, uh, A406 and H205, okay? So basically, these are the area in zone three or four in greater London area. So again, uh, we found that the speed actually can be maintained uh, uh, throughout the day uh, in between, uh, on this network as well. So um, gen some general observations. Um, so we, we found that, so again, this is an initial an analysis. Now we found that the road speed on, on London network basically can be maintained during the games, okay, which is good news. And so several reasons that we can think of. Um, so first reason is that actually Transfer for London, we know that they have been doing quite a lot of, they have been doing a lot of work to make sure that the traffic can be flowing uh, uh, smoothly during the games. So uh, for example, there's an active traffic management uh, uh, on the game's names using the variable uh, message line. They also adjust the uh, uh, signal timings to, to control the traffic flows into the central port. And also, um, now I didn't show any uh, data regarding uh, the traffic volume of flow, but actually uh, uh, we also found that, or even uh, residents in London may notice that, may notice that there was a reduction in traffic volume, actually. There was a reduction in traffic volume and flow in central London, which suggests that there could be some, some adjustment made by travelers, okay? So again, so this is an, an, some, some initial analysis, but uh, uh, now at this, at this stage, what we found is that, so actually by having effective uh, traffic management and having effective uh, demand man management, there is potential that we can improve the efficiency and cap capacity of London Road Network. So this is something that actually uh, uh, we can think about in the future. So, um, so we got more actually during the process sessions that we set up. So we do some visualization to show the spatial distributions of London traffic. And we also have some demo, uh, computer demonstration uh, in South Cloister. So after uh, this talk, actually you can move to South Cloister and see our demonstration of the standard project. Okay, so that's the end of my presentation. Thank you. I have to apologize for the uh, second half of that, but I couldn't resist because if we go back, uh, you know, a few months, as as, um, as Peter was saying, there were a lot of kind of doomsday scenarios, and and they didn't materialize. And one of the things that I'm going to be talking about is some aspects of why that didn't happen on the tube line. So, I mean, one of the reasons that people became concerned is, of course, on a you know on a regular day, the tube feels like it's at capacity. Um, and, and you know, no amount of investment ahead of time could have allowed the tube and, and you know, overground DLR and the rest of it to cope with simultaneously, you know, regular commuting and uh, you know the, the additional impact of the spectators and of course the games family and everyone else. So uh, you know, demonstrating that no good deed goes unpunished, they uh, you know they handled it really rather well. But what's not yet clear, and one of the things that we're trying to dig into with the Oyster Card data, is sort of what aspects of this strategy, of the demand management strategy on the sort of public transit network, you know, were kind of the most effective, in, you know, in achieving that kind of smooth operation. So, because we're looking at Oyster data, you know, this doesn't include the, um, the you know, the games tickets. So, spectators on the day who are traveling around with their, you know, Zone One to Seven passes, they're not in this database. Um, and nor are, uh, you know, for the time being, the games makers. So this is, this is really a view of, 
if, if you will, kind of regular Londoners, regular you know, travelers to London who weren't perhaps directly participating in the games. Um, as of, I think, about last night, we're currently looking at about a billion you know, actions throughout the course, you know, across the network. And um, what I've got here is this, this, is a, this is a regular Monday from kind of shortly before uh, the Olympics started. And what I've done is basically tried to map, based on the shortest path, people from origins to destinations. So this is a regular Monday. And this was the first Monday of the Games, which you may recall was the busiest. Now, I'm not going to waste your time flipping back and forth, because the fact is the differences are very hard to spot. Um, there, you can trust me that there are differences, but, um, you know, but, but they're not clear at, at this kind of level of aggregation. So if it wasn't kind of this massive drop-off in Oyster Card users, you know, what happened? Well, firstly, you, know, you can't talk about the Games without talking about kind of where the events happen. And clearly, in this case, you know, one of the one of the great things about the design of the game was that the venues were distributed, in a sense, in the exact opposite places from where commuters are trying to get into uh, trying to get into the games. Um, and also, people who you know traveled regularly into central London, you know, the evidence that I'm sort of starting to see in the data suggests that there was some shifting towards, you know, using you know the Victoria Line and some National Rail a little bit more. And people, there were definitely also some noticeable drops along the central line, which was how a lot of, of course, a lot of spectators were going to be getting to and from uh, Stratford. But we can then take the Oyster Card activity and start to dig down into the behavior of people who, you know, use the tube before the games and continue to use the tube, um, you know, throughout the whole period. So these are kind of two populations that I've pulled out. So these aren't kind of standard TFL classifications, but commuters were people who regularly, basically used the, you know, used the tube um, at least four days a week uh, prior to the games, and then of course, what happened, what did, they, what did they do during the games, and then of course, you've got this kind of more variable population below. Um, and the main thing to note is that really, a lot of people, and this is why I called it Keep Calm and Carry On, nearly 90% of the single largest user group within the Oyster Card population pretty much continued to commute. I mean, this is so that this sort of story of deserted London describes not, you know, describes more the tourist impact and really not the fact that, the, you know, that the, the public transit net, network was, was coping with some sort of fairly small but significant shifts. And this is, this is, I think, one of the most interesting things about it. But clearly, people with, this, people with greater discretion in their normal travel habits also clearly responded much more actively or seem to have responded much more actively to you know, the, the messaging that was coming out about, you know, trying not to travel unless it was essential. So, you know, here's, here's another view. Now, this is now sort of add, starting to add time into the picture. And uh, so we've got the pre-Olympic average, you know, some drops. But this is actually really hard to see. So perhaps a more useful way to look at it is to, if we take that pre-Olympic average and subtract it from what happened on the day, we can kind of get a sense of when the shifts are happening uh, across the system as a whole. And so, you know, there's a, there's a few things that I've just picked out here. One is, uh, this is the opening, this is uh, the, the night of the opening ceremonies. Uh, and I've got another slide, actually, that has a bit, bit from that as well. So big, big uptick for a, for a Friday evening. Um, and also, and this is the first Monday over here when a lot of people said, you know what, I'm going to leave that a little extra bit earlier, just give myself some more time and see what happens. But you'll notice that that big peak on the Monday tapers off quite quickly as people realize, actually, it's 
really kind of pleasant right now. Um, and, uh, and then finally, of course, we have the other thing that's quite interesting is, and this is something that we'll have to see what happens sort of in the post-Paralympic period. There's actually, you know, in the uh, post-Olympics period, the traffic hasn't really recovered um, relative to the normal behavior that we've seen. Now, of course, literally school has just started again. That's a big factor. Um, you know, we had, a, we had an August bank holiday in between the two, the two Olympics. So, you know, I think it's, you know, the, this is very much a case of the picture not yet being in. Um, and if we look at that other group, the one that, uh, you know, traveled less often, here the impacts are a lot more obvious. So, um, the, the, the first thing is that drop, which is simply, so the week of the opening ceremonies, there's nothing, in, in a sense, if this were all Olympic impacts, you wouldn't expect anything to happen until we get to basically Friday. Um, you know, there's that little much smaller uh, uh, lift from, from the opening ceremonies. So we're already looking at a big drop, and that is why, you know, a, an important factor in this seems to have been the fact that, you know, the, the schools were out. But then, of course, the drop continues throughout the, uh, throughout the Olympic period and hasn't yet, as of, you know, the, the first post-Olympics, we recovered. So running it forward, we'll see what happens going through the Paralympics. So a um, couple of sort of, as I said, very preliminary conclusions. Um, my understanding is that you know, from the surveys that, uh, that TFL and the ODA undertook during the Olympics, it seems roughly 30% of people changed their behavior in some way, whether it was timing, route, or simply not, you know, trying not to travel at all. So oyster, oyster, you know, this oyster stuff that I presented is really, you know, it's, it's a partial picture. We're missing two other really big groups for now. But we'll see what happens, uh, you know, as kind of we start to integrate the other data, sort, data sets. So these are some very sort of back of the envelope calculations. But in terms of kind of my definition of frequent Oyster card users, it looks like you know maybe 10 to 15 percent change their patterns, which is actually a surprisingly small number. But it's because the TFL network normally copes with literally millions and millions of people on a daily basis. So in a sense, it's a small proportion, but a big impact, and it. And I think that, uh, you know, in, in particular, it seems like that the sort of discretionary travel by people who, you know, have a little more flexibility is really where we kind of got that, that, that margin to, to make, uh, you know, to make it seem less crowded than normal. Um, and let's see, you know, finally, uh, you know, I, I think, I mean, for me, of course, and obviously I'd say this, but I actually do think it's true. This is, you know, the legacy of the data itself. There's never been an Olympics where public transit has formed such an integral part of the games. I think, you know, in a way, London, because it has such a rich, um, deep transit infrastructure, um, you know, both metaphorically and literally, it set the bar very high. And if you were to think of, you know, for instance, I grew up in Toronto where they basically got two subway lines, much lower ridership you know, the, the capacity of the games to kind of carry that number of spectators, uh, uh, sorry, public transit to carry that number of spectators, I think would, it would be a much, uh, much more difficult sell. But, uh, you know, but I think that, you know, going forward, we still have this really interesting way of looking at a particular record of, um, you know, of activity by, uh, you know, during, during Olympic Games, which has never been available before. So just to finish off, um, you know, obviously I, I, I do need to thank the people uh, at TFL who really worked very actively to support me at a very stressful time uh, for them and I think for me by the end of it. Um, and just, uh, just as a sort of a fun, uh, two fun little things, 
Um, over here is uh, sort of, it's a bit hard to see, but bus versus tube, and there's this sort of disappearing pre-Olympic peak, and that really is the bus travel. So to get, again, just to give you a sense of the scale of kind of the amount of travel that happens during term time versus out of term time. And um, here, this is the Friday night, which is, which is just here, and there's this great kind of, everybody stops traveling to watch the opening ceremonies, and then we get to this kind of point where basically the athletes come out and a bunch of people are like, you know what, I've seen it, I'm ready to go. But then you've got this other one here. So there's this great kind of, this little insight into how people felt about the start of the games uh, just there. Um, and, and that's it. So. Thank you for inviting me this evening. Uh, just to say my role in all of this, um, because I've not been part of the the team, so like Lauren and others who've been there every day monitoring this, all part of the teams that have been out there actually doing it. Um, there's a whole host of people all across TFL who've been preparing for this, who've been making the roads work, making the tubes work, doing all the maintenance, hosts of people so like preparing it. My job's been to report on it. <laughs> and and, and, and pl planning was certainly involved up front when we made the bid. Uh, for Olympic Games to say sort of like that we could host it and these are all the sort of like the infrastructure requirements that would be needed in order to support it and then when we got it you know passed it over to the operational people to make it work so so like loads of people in this room are responsible for it but the other thing that we did was to actually um, set out uh, last year um, an Olympic uh, transport legacy action plan because there's a requirement to monitor what the Olympics has done um, in terms of uh, the legacy on TFL and the way we operate um, our systems, and the way we govern, how we work together, um, how that's had a legacy in terms of behavioural change, which is the sort of like the focus of today, um, but but importantly, um, the the actual legacy in terms of convergence. You know, the reasons that we've we've sort of like we're keen to hold the Olympics weren't so we could prove we were great at running events. So I think we've proved we we're quite good. Um, but it was to actually make a difference, particularly to East London, to boost East London, to generate um, jobs and growth in East London, and to ensure that the quality of life in East, East London actually comes up to that of um, other parts of London. And, and in all the sort of like the, um, the joyous sort of celebrations of how well it's gone, uh, the legacy has got a long time to run before we can actually tick the box and say we've achieved it. But in the meantime, we should certainly um, celebrate the actual operational legacy. Um, as I said before, uh, in preparation for the Olympics and as part of the bid, uh, it was identified that if we were going to run it here, despite the fact the sites would be spread over London, some significant enhancements to the, um, the networks would be required in terms of um, upgrading the Jubilee line, having increased frequency on the Jubilee line, the actual creation of the overground network, a significant improvement, the extension to the DLR into Stratford, lots of different... Um, physical transport improvements that uh, were made to the area, um, £6.5 billion worth. So a lot of money was spent. So again, you need to make sure you've got some legacy benefits um, that respond to that and, and that you do have these sort of like enduring uh, legacy benefits. But that wasn't the only thing that was required. Sticking the infrastructure in wasn't the, the only thing that would make the games work. As the previous two speakers have alluded to, uh, there's going to be this additional demand loaded on the network and uh, we have to make sure that, I mean, we couldn't build transport capacity into to sort of just, just to meet the needs of um, six weeks or two lots of two weeks. We, we, had to, we had to sort of like get the right 
additional fixed capacity in, and then we had to understand how we could make that work for the duration of the Games. So it was recognised that a lot of work would be needed to accommodate the very peaky demands that were predicted um, as part of the, um, the Olympics, and in particular, as, as Henry has alluded to, dealing with the, um, the Games family and the Games lane and the requirements to ensure that the Games family to get, could get to venues on time uh, in, at, at a certain speed um, and not be delayed in any way, as well as ensuring that all the spectators and the athletes could um, get to all their events. So, so a hell of a lot of work was done. Um, TFL sort of, I suppose, joined the party later. A lot of work was done by the ODA and then TFL joined the party, realising that if we didn't do a lot more in terms of trying to manage the demand and change people's behaviour, we would observe problems on the network. We would, we would have to sort of do a lot more to discourage people, perhaps going about their daily business or operating as they normally do in the, su in the summer, um, from going to certain parts of the network, to using certain stations, which we predicted would be very busy if things turned out as planned, or using certain roads, particularly the games lane, unless we discourage them from using those during that period. So, so there was a major program of travel demand management um, in preparation with campaigns to advise people all over the country that the games were coming, these would be the impacts, and we'd need to do something about it. And it's people as well as businesses, or individuals as well as businesses, that had to be um, contacted uh, over and over and over again. Millions and millions and millions of emails sent out, lots of visits, lots of big events. Um, with sort of like key things like um, Peter saying it's going to be very busy, but if it is busy, you know, don't worry, just go and have a beer, sort of thing. Wait for it to be less busy, and then you can go and use the system. And I think sort of like the the imagery, all the sort of like the, the media stuff associated with it, did catch people's attention. Um, and as I say, it's proven that it's worked, and it worked in the sense that we did carry a lot more people during the games, particularly on the public transport networks. Um, in terms of sort of like absolute numbers, um, the tubes sort of like saw record levels of tube ridership. It was all over the network. It was going to different venues. Um, in terms of the way it's measured, there were, there were sort of like 600 million journeys, uh, people perhaps you know, making more journeys per day um, because they were visiting different venues. But overall, if you looked at it in terms of journey stages, sort of like 30% up from normal levels. Uh, the DLR just carried record levels of um, passengers. Obviously, it's in the vicinity of the Games itself. Um, over half a million daily journeys. London, London Overground as well. The Emirates Airline, which we never promised would be ready in time for the Olympics. It was never, ever, ever an Olympic deliverable. And uh, we kept re reminding people it wasn't an Olympic deliverable, but we worked dead hard to make sure it was ready on time. Uh, we predicted in the first year of operation it would need to carry about 2 million people. It carried a million in the first two months. So it's proved very attractive um, and certainly very helpful in dispersing people um, around some of the games venues. The Barclays Cycle Hire Scheme itself um, record levels of usage with a million hires in July, all demonstrating that public transport in terms of all forms has been used. Um, and on the roads, as Henry said, uh, all the people in TFL who sought to sort of uh, manage the roads, to, to introduce the, um, the management systems, the controls that are in place, but importantly that they're working together with other par partners, not just TFL working, uh, but TFL working with 
the different agencies that are um, controlling traffic outside of London, the boroughs, everybody working together so that decisions could be made as to how to operate the network, uh, to decide, as I said, you know, we've set up these, these games lanes. They were a bit contentious because quite a few people were concerned that the games lanes might impede them moving around. But with constant monitoring and changing, deciding actually, you know, we don't need this games lane running today, we, could, we can turn it off or we need it running another day. So a very sort of like micromanaged network um, with agencies working together and sort of operating the system in, in, in a way that we've never ever done um, before. And as, as we said, we, we saw sort of like traffic levels down um, and we saw sort of like generally um, the level of service improved in some areas. Certainly it was absolutely glorious for riding a bike round um, because the roads seemed a lot less empty. Um, and, 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 and more pleasant, and we did see sort of like an increase in walking and cycling. Um, the other thing, though, that was marvellous, and, and I think this is a point that um, John made, is part of the preparation was to make sure of the infrastructure that we had, it would work, um, that we didn't have big delays, that things didn't break down, we couldn't afford for things to break down, not, not sort of like when loads and loads of people want to sort of get to or from something. So it's the maintenance teams and the maintenance regimes that were put in place to make sure if something did go um, wrong, it was fixed quickly. And uh, teams got to those locations quickly to fix them for the period of games. So very, very high levels of service and reliability. Um, probably better than non-games, but as you know, we had a moratorium on works and upgrades and all those things. And, and it may well be people think, well, can't we just continue going forward? Well, we do have a big upgrade program to continue. Um, and we do have to get on with the roadworks that, that are necessary. But, but generally, uh, it worked very, very well. And I think so like um, all the operational teams can give them a really big slap on the back um, in terms of what they actually delivered. And the analytics teams who are working with them, advising what was happening on the network on a hourly basis. Um, in terms of sort of the, um, the Paralympics, uh, very sort of um, quick results because it only finished on Sunday um, and we had the big event yesterday. I think, I think one of the problems that we've got at the moment is TfL has been so absorbed in delivering the Olympics, we haven't had the, the luxury that Andy and Henry have had of actually analysing all this lot yet. So it's actually quite interesting to, to listen <laughs> to some of the results. Um, but there's a lot of analysis still to, still to be done. Um, but the Paralympics, it was, it was feared that that wouldn't uh, work as well because it was encroaching into school term time and people would come back and they would have more difficulties dealing with the road network. But in the event, um, it worked as well. Uh, we, we saw slightly more people coming back, but effectively the, the travel demand management me messaging that was put out, um, advising people where, where places were busy, advising them to sort of either to reroute, uh, change their mode, retime or whatever, advising people staying at home, that all helped in changing behaviours. And it may well be, as, as John implied, you know, people did decide to go on holiday, as they normally do, and they planned it around the Olympics. Um, and that's one of the things that we have to do, is try and understand why did we observe what we have observed and understand that fully, because when we do understand it fully, we can uh, use that in developing policy going forward. Um, in terms of writing it up, um, lots of people are trying to like, write up the story, uh, but what we've planned, and certainly as part of the Olympic Transport Legacy um, Action Plan, was that we'd monitor this and we'd provide our reports in the um, TfL's Travel in London report. Uh, we produce these reports annually, the next one's due in December, and there will be a spotlight in terms of initial results 
on the games. Um, and we have to sort of understand sort of what, you know, go, go through the evidence and understand exactly why have we observed what we have observed. Uh, when there is something unlike the games, it, there's, a, there's a big disincentive for some people to, to travel if you're saying it's going to be very, very congested. But there are lots of locations in London, there are lots of places in London where, where it is congested. Uh, there are things that we'll be doing going forward in the next sort of 10 years when we do various upgrades where we have to close stations or um, do big pieces of work where it'll be congested. So, so can we apply what we've learned to those um, examples? And another area which is really, really important, and Natalie will, will sort of like talk about um, what's happened with freight, is trying to understand how we can also influence the behaviour of, of um, businesses and of freight operators, because certainly um, there was a, there was the intention that there would be sort of like deliveries at different times of day and businesses work in different ways, which I'll share with you in a minute. But we we want to understand how how that can be sustained, because if we can remove um, some of the freight traffic, particularly off the daytime um, traffic levels, that would make a big big difference to the congestion levels in London. Um, but we can't do that if it's going to sort of create economic problems for uh, businesses or problems for residents. So there has been sort of like monitoring going on. The TDM team were doing sort of uh, regular waves of monitoring to understand how sort of a panel or panels of, um, not panels, actually, like 300, sort of like a group of 300 um, people uh, each, 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 each day were responding to... Um, the TDM messages and whether they understood them and whether or not they were changing behaviours and that was being used to actually inform those TDM messages the next day and subsequent days um, but behind that there's been a, like a longer uh, series of surveys that have been done um, Claire Sheffield here in the audience and others have actually sort of like set up um, a series of surveys to provide us a sort of better understanding of what people may have done what they what they with surveys um, at the beginning to sort of say what people intended on doing surveys during the course of the Olympics in terms of what they did and then ongoing surveys after the Olympics and Paralympics are finished to sort of understand whether they did do that and whether or not um, it can be sustained or they want to sustain so a much bigger sort of um, panel and sample so we can uh, gain further insight into why this has happened. Um, and in terms of the sort of like the, the, the first set of results that we got from that, this is, this, is, this is from this big sort of sample. These are the results of people who've said um, what they were going to do sort of before the game started. And uh, sort of like uh, some 60% um, said that their employer had encouraged them to take action and plan their game's travel time, so they're aware of all that. Um, over 50% said that uh, colleagues and friends were discussing changing the way they were travelling. 84% um, said they were aware of Get Ahead of Games. And 64% said they were planning to actually use the Get, Get Ahead of Games website and plan their travel. I.e. people, the, the messaging that was going out before the Olympics was getting through to people and they were thinking, yes, I need to do something about it. You've told me it's going to be very congested. These, are going, these places are going to be congested. These roads are going to be congested. I, I'm taking notice. Um, and I'm going to do something about it. Though there were the sort of naysayers who thought um, things uh, wouldn't work because only 3% thought it would work. Um, so there were naysayers who thought it wouldn't work, um, but people were looking forward to the game, so that was the, the good thing. Um, 
and then uh, sort of like more detail about what they then said they were plan planning to do. And this is the interesting stuff. And this is the stuff that we need to look at alongside the oyster data and alongside the, you know, what was happening on the roads and on the buses and um, on the sort of like walking and cycling. Was that before the games, uh, one in five people said that they're expecting to be outside of London. You know, they'd, they'd be on holiday. Um, nearly a quarter were planning to work from home. Employers had sort of like um, heard the messaging and were allowing some people to work from home. So sort of 21% um, were going to work from home and 2% were planning to work from home every day. Um, and then 28% said they were planning to change the time of their journey um, by an hour. 20% said they were planning to change their route and 19% said that they were planning to change their mode. So quite a lot of people were planning to change in some way, but half of all workers said that they weren't planning to change their journey because they, they, they perhaps couldn't um, because of the, the work options that they had. They perhaps couldn't. So if a fifth have gone away and sort of, um, sort of half of what's left were going to change, that sort of, if, if you, because people can answer some of these questions twice, so it's not sort of adding all those up, doesn't give you 100%. Um, but the implication would be some 30% of people would change. And that actually is a figure that's similar to these more regular 300 um, slot surveys that came out of the TDM stuff, that some 30% would change, given 20% were on holiday. Um, so uh, we also sort of did surveys amongst um, freight and um, business um, operators to, to understand what they were going to do, because... It's, 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 if, if this can be sustained, and also if, if businesses are saying, yes, we'll let people work at home during the games, but not afterwards, well, that's a lost legacy, but they may well sort of want to continue those practices. So again, trying to understand um, what was happening um, with freight and businesses. So we had a sample, a panel survey, 1,000 businesses, 1,000 freight operators, and did waves of surveys before the games, during the games and we'll continue those waves afterwards, trying to understand how they might respond. On the basis of that data in terms of um, how uh, people were preparing, freight operators, some 71% um, thought the games would have an impact on their business, and they were right, it would if they didn't do anything. Uh, most of them expected it to be negative. 77% were prepared, which is really good because they needed to be prepared, so the messaging was getting through and some 45% had undertaken some planning. 68% um, were aware of the information available. So as with people, messaging was actually getting through to, to freight operators. Similarly for businesses, um, people were aware, they thought that half would thought the games would have an impact, 70% were prepared, and 50% um, were aware of the information available. What we now need to know is what they did, which is, uh, I think Claire's got some results coming through but it's just processing them and they say that the other results that one needs to prepare is what they do between now and sort of like next year that's the sort of like the really really interesting stuff so we are analyzing this stuff um i can't tell you the results because we don't know other than it worked because there isn't a problem um, or there wasn't a problem out there um and we will sort of like share data as it's sort of like processed and, and examined. But we do need to look at this data, as I say, with all the other data sets to properly understand why. We also need to see what other events were taking place. We need to look at sort of like the trends, any underlying trends. There's no point sharing sort of some 
counts now versus some counts last year. I think the time of last year, you know, the riots were on um, during that same period. So we, need, so we need to take into account those, those sort of um, events to properly understand how well this has worked. But certainly TfL is very, very excited that if TDM has worked in this instance, it has big implications for managing um, people on our networks, both public transport and the road network, so that we can get much, much more out of our networks. And this is important, as you know, Peter, because if you predict the growth that's forecast for London over the next 20 years, uh, we'll see a sort of like a 15% increase in travel across the network, some sort of 24 million chips made per day, and that's going to arise um, by a further 4 million. So a significant increase in growth. We might need a lot more transport infrastructure to cope with that. If we can spread demand, if we can encourage people to avoid busy areas, maybe we don't need to have to invest so much in new physical infrastructure. So that would be a real, real plus if, if that's the case. Or is it because this was Olympics, this is special, it's only going to happen once in our lifetimes, people could put up with it for that and um, therefore not necessarily be sustainable. But the excitement is it could be um, sustainable. Uh, there are, though, as I say, a whole load of other organisational legacy issues that TfL is very, very excited about. Um, one of the things that lots of the um, uh, people like Seb and uh, Boris and, and, and the Prime Minister um, said was, was the importance of volunteers. And certainly uh, a key part of helping managing demand and giving out information um, during the Olympics was, was the, the Pink Brigade or Magenta, as it's properly called. Um, but the, the, the TfL's travel ambassadors, um, we all, I mean, that's one thing I did do. You had to be a travel ambassador. Go and stand at Baker Street for um, quite, quite a few days telling people, you know, use the Metropolitan Line southbound and use that platform and do-do-do. But it was, it was brilliant because it gave out information to people, it helped them make their choices, um, and it helped smooth um, the operations. And we, we want to be able to use um, those travel ambassadors going forward for other events and other issues. Um, there are things such as, I say, the way we work, um, lots of, sort of like lessons learned within the organisation, the way we work, how we run things, how we maintain things. Um, and also there's lots of people saying, well, if you run uh, tubes later for the Olympics, why can't you run them later, sort of ongoing? Obviously there's issues about that, but loads of stuff. And the Transport Coordination Centre, which is bringing together of other organisations who help manage transport, you know, what lessons can we learn about keeping them? But not forgetting, as I say, this longer-term legacy. So the behavioural legacy, the operational legacy, but the longer-term leg legacy. The Olympic Park um, it will, will be shut for, for a while as it's sort of like changed. Um, athletes' homes turned into sort of people's homes and um, the various events sort of like modified, new homes built, etc. But the key thing here is how do we make sure that that park has a significant impact on London, changes the socioeconomic dynamics of London, and in particular delivers the convergence that's actually required for those boroughs in those areas. And we will continue to monitor that um, to demonstrate convergence over the next 20 years. So we don't know yet, but we're very hopeful that this is a very good result. Thank you. Um, I thought just before I start talking about the Olympics, I'll just give a quick overview on who we are, because I, I'm aware that many of you might not be aware of the Freight Transport Association. Um, we are one of the UK's largest trade associations with just over 14,000 member companies. Um, 
and they operate about 200,000 HGVs, which is approximately half of the UK vehicle fleet of HGVs, and over a million light vans. Uh, there's about 3 million vans registered in the UK, so these are about a third of the, the um, vans in the UK are operated um, on a fleet basis by our members as well. Um, and, but we are more than just road transport, we represent the whole supply chain, so whether that's by air, sea, by rail, um, our members uh, are involved in all aspects um, of the supply chain. And we have um, offices around the UK and in Brussels, because a lot of the legislation that affects our industry um, comes from the EU. And we also have a trade association in Ireland that we've just launched, which is connected but, but fairly separate, because we may, at Europe, disagree on certain issues. Um, but generally, we work very well together. So in terms of the Olympics, um, the industry faced a real challenge. Um, many of you are aware, obviously, that the various restrictions that were being put in place for the Games, the, the ORN, the PRN, the Games lanes, there were going to be road closures for road events, um, more people using uh, parts of the network, increased security. And this layering effect of restrictions was the biggest concern that we had, was how do we manage that, given that certain sectors were actually expecting to see an increase in volume. Um, now, we're still looking to see whether that increase actually did materialise, and I'll come on to that later. Um, and there was also, you know, the big concern for us was about a risk of failed deliveries and collections, that there'll be empty shelves, that restaurants wouldn't have food, and most importantly, I think that pubs wouldn't have beer, particularly on the days when uh, the official vice from TfL was to go down the pub and have a pint after work. So the pubs had to have beer, um, and we had to also make sure that waste was collected as well, because we wouldn't want to see the streets um, of London with uh, the world's uh, media spotlight looking at us, um, and uh, the, the streets not looking good too. So this was all really, really important. So our challenge was more to deliver and less time to do it in. So what did we do? Well, we, uh, we worked very closely with Transport for London, certainly for the last two years, uh, since they picked up the freight um, work stream from the Olympic Delivery Authority, and prior to that, we had been working with ODA. And I think when, when TfL picked up the road freight work stream, I think it was fairly quick, um, soon on, that, that it, there was a real reala realisation, right at the very top, from Peter Hendy, that there was a risk um, if, they didn't, if TfL didn't work very closely with our sector, with our industry, that we could have problems of failed deliveries. And that would be unacceptable, that, that business, not just businesses, but actually residents, London as a whole, had to be supported. You know, we're um, forgiving to a certain extent, but you know, when we can't get our paper, we can't get our, our pint of milk, or more importantly, our pint of beer, then uh, I think patience soon begins to run out. So we worked very, very closely with TfL. Um, Alongside the, the information that TfL put out, we also developed um, an Olympic microsite for our members with a lot of information on there, and you can go and have a look and see for yourself what's on there. Uh, we developed a, an app for iPhone and Android as well, so um, people could capture some of that information on the go. We issued bulletins and travel, travel alerts and traffic alerts, um, some of that, much of that information provided by TfL. We also had a dedicated Olympic advisor in our member advice centre. So if our members had any queries, they could pick up the phone and speak to somebody um, about whatever issue they may have. Um, and we also developed a, a support guide for our members, template letters and driver cards, just helping them understand what the restrictions were and what they could do about it. And uh, it was the social media games, and we too uh, made the most of social media, and uh, we've really sort of jumped on that. So. Uh, we had our, our Twitter account was very, very busy, and uh, I also 
got onto Twitter as well. On the day of the opening ceremonies, when I started tweeting, so you can follow me there if you want to see what I had to say. Um, and we also have our, our Facebook account, um, our LinkedIn group. We were trying to put out questions during the games, discussions about so how's it going. I have to say, you didn't get an awful lot of feedback, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And we also have a YouTube channel. We, we uh, did some filming with DHL before, during, and after the games to understand the impact that it had on, on their business as well. So those videos are available from our YouTube channel or from the FTA website if you want to have a look. So what did we do? Well, the industry were also given the four R's. The four R's were part of uh, the TDM message, and most of that was developed around movement of people. And the freight team at TFL translated that into, well, what can that be for freight? So reduce was about pre-ordering. You know, things like um, uh, a photocopier paper, you don't have to have the daily deliveries of that. Even restaurants, you might argue, they have to have daily deliveries of perishable products, but napkins and cleaning products, they don't have to have those delivered every day. They could go in before the games. Preventative maintenance, so things like your photocopier, perhaps have that uh, maintained before the games, so that if there was an issue about it breaking down, well, hopefully it wouldn't break down because you'd already done that preventative maintenance. Retime was a big area that we, uh, that we did a, um, a lot on, um, particularly around out-of-hours deliveries. Some of it was a change in delivery days um, if, uh, if certain um, deliveries weren't made on a daily basis. They were just made on days to avoid um, the predicted hotspots. So, for example... The first weekend of the, of the games, we had the um, cycle road race out through southwest London and into Surrey, and I think the industry very clearly heeded the warning that area was to be avoided, like the plague, if you could possibly do so uh, for those two days, and, and companies generally did. But out-of-hours deliveries, I think, was probably one of our key, um, our key solutions, and I'll talk a bit about that in terms of legacy um, towards the end. Reroute as well was another, another thing that a lot of companies did. We knew that if you wanted to travel along the Olympic route network, it would be great. You'd have the journey of your life, and I think some of those, uh, the results show that actually it was a lot smoother during the Games. But if you wanted to cross the ORN, we knew that that was going to be a lot more tricky, that priority was being given to the Games family traffic and that there may be some issues about crossing the ORN. And indeed, some turns uh, were banned, some left and right hand turns were banned. So some companies looked at changing their um, delivery schedule just to avoid crossing the RN, perhaps even using different depots um, to try and avoid crossing it as well. Revised mode, we thought mm, that was perhaps going to be a little bit uh, a, a little bit of a difficult one for the industry because you know we weren't talking about suddenly putting freight on rail for central London. There's lots of rail freight opportunities, but they tend to be over much longer distances, not so much for the urban environment. So we think, well, what can we really do about revising mode? But actually, a lot of companies do some quite innovative things. And you can see some pictures up there. There was the DHL joggers, and uh, UPS used um, cycle couriers. So some companies did do things, and there were certain areas where it was actually not impossible to get a vehicle into. So the last bit of the journey was made on foot. And we had people using sort of vans like mini warehouses and just sending people out on foot. So whether or not that, that continues after the Games, um, we're not yet sure. But there were some really innovative things that were done. And what we were very clear about and what TFL were very clear about was that these were all suggestions. By no means 
did everybody have to do everything? Because it very much depended on the uh, location, the sector, and the commodity as to what was appropriate. So operations, operations time during the games, um, there were twice daily uh, bulletins from TfL. Um, there were also some additional alerts from TfL. And we sent out some alerts over and above those from TfL to, to uh, members that are signed up to receive them via email and also via text message. Um, I was involved in twice daily bridge calls with something called CSSC, which was a partnership set up um, for the Games, although it's planned to continue actually permanently. And this is a partnership between the Met Police, uh, Transport for London, London Resilience and London's wider business community. Um, and this is actually based on um, some work or a project that um, the US government have with American businesses based overseas to communicate with them about any... Um, uh, security issues that they may face and that worked really well. The only problem that we found, and in fact I had a meeting about it this afternoon, a bit of a debrief, was we didn't test it in anger, fortunately, but we don't know how it would stand up. So there's lots of work now going on to say, well, well what would happen if, if, you know, if there was a worst case scenario? So we're actually talking about, thinking about doing more testing after the games, but ahead of any other things that may, may arise. Had we've had this during the riots, it would have been really, really helpful. Um, so I think that's something that will we'll continue on. And of course, there was a very wide usage of, of social media as well. So we communicated with our members and also with, um, with TFR and with other um, government bodies as well um, in a variety of ways. So how did it go? Um, a few quotes from, uh, from some of our members that are uh, commented to us and to TfL. On the whole, it went pretty well, and um, I really struggled to, um, to get much feedback. And I thought day one, you know, the first, well, the first working day, at least, um, of, of the games, my phone would be ringing off the hook and my inbox would be full of people complaining about things. And, and generally, if my members have got an issue, they do tend to tell me, and they didn't. It was really quiet, and I was thinking, why is that? And I, so I'm phoning them up, going, are you sure you don't have any problems? And even the most vocal of our members were going, no, it's fine, really not got any problems at all. So they were very, very um, positive. Um, there were a few problems. I won't say there, were no, there weren't any problems at all. Um, I think some of those problems emerged um, in the days before the opening ceremony when um, parts of the, uh, the new measures were switched on. A few teething problems, I think, the drivers getting used to the games lane, particularly ahead of the 25th of July when the majority of the games lanes were switched on. There were, of course, games lanes marked out, and there was some confusion with drivers, can I go into them, can't I? There were VMS signs everywhere saying whether you could use it or not, but, um, but I think some were, were reluctant to go into the games lanes. And even when they weren't in operation, um, it would be interesting to see what the actual stats were. But I think some drivers treated them the way they do with bus lanes that aren't 24-7. They just kept out of them because it's the safest thing to do because then you know you're not going to get hit with a big fine. Um, there were a couple of unexpected road closures and clearways introduced by, uh, by some of the boroughs that I don't think we were entirely aware of. Um, but we managed to sort of sort those out. And that kind of seemed to sort itself out in the week before... Uh, before the, uh, before the uh, actually opening ceremony. We're not sure about volumes. Um, we know that um, certain parts of London were quieter than usual, particularly from um, the tourist angle. Um, parts of the West End, which are normally very, very busy with tourists, were quieter. 
we don't know what impact that has had on volumes. And, of course, a lot of our members have spent huge amounts of money preparing for the Games. This hasn't come cheap. Um, you know, they've had to put on extra vehicles, extra drivers, all the planning resource, extra security. So are they going to get that back? Um, my feeling is that maybe not in the short term, but I think we'll see the benefits come through in the longer term with people seeing the Olympics on TV going, wow, what a fantastic city we're all going to come and, and have spent our holidays there in, in 2013. So maybe we will see that benefit, but in the longer run. Penalty charge notices were another of my big concerns ahead of the Games. Um, my members pick up millions of pounds a year in parking fines whilst making deliveries. It's quite scary. We used to have a millionaires club and there were companies that were picking up, I'm, I'm not joking, more than a million pounds a year in parking fines. Um, we've done a huge amount of work on it and we have seen some decline, although we are seeing creeping back up again. So we're going to continue doing that work post the Games. But my concern was that with all these new restrictions, there'll be confused drivers around. Would there be, you know, a big, um, you know, a big legacy of, you know, PCNs being issued like confetti? Um, we don't yet know because a lot of them are issued via CCTV. We don't yet know exactly what's coming through, um, so we'll keep a bit of an eye on that. But I haven't had um, lots of phone calls saying I've been hit with PCNs. So fingers crossed, um, we didn't see a spike in, in, in fines. And there were a few failed, I think, issues of failed deliveries around some of the, the venues um, for security. I think it was just issues about people having the wrong permits, that sort of thing. But it wasn't a widespread issue. So on the whole, it was a pretty positive message, a uh, pretty positive experience. So um, in terms of legacy, um, and this is obviously the, the, the big buzzword at the moment, we're trying to sort of work out... I think there were certain initiatives such as nighttime deliveries that where we see, I think that's an area we see the biggest, um, biggest legacy. A lot of companies hadn't really used nighttime deliveries in the past, um, shifted for the games, and a lot of them are saying, actually, we're going to look to do it in the long run. Um, we've been doing a lot of work on nighttime deliveries over the last few years, um, particularly with the Noise Abatement Society, because obviously the big challenge about delivering at night is that's a time when people are trying to get some sleep. So it doesn't work if you wake up all the residents who are likely to also be customers of the business that you're delivering to as well. So we, we, I think we're going to continue that work, but it's given a real springboard. What some companies might have to do is, is, is perhaps put extra investment into certain areas if they want to continue um, delivering at night. But the, the benefits are certainly proven. Um, if you deliver at night, um, you can get from A to B a lot quicker. Also, journey time reliability is improved, not just journey time, but journey time reliability, which is very important when it comes to scheduling as well. Um, it also helps if you can get from A to B a lot quicker, it means that your fuel costs go down, you can get a lot more utilisation out of your vehicle, it means things like if you're using less fuel, then also your CO2 emissions and other emissions go down as well. So there are other benefits, and work that's been done in the Netherlands has shown that there's been actually a, a real benefit in terms of um, road safety, because if you're delivering at night, you have fewer vulnerable road users, such as cyclists, around on the roads as well. So there are lots of benefits, but we need to make sure we, we harness um, nighttime deliveries as much as we can where they are appropriate. There have been other tools as well developed um, for the Olympics. It was the Freight Journey Planner, which was a project that TfL 
um, had invested in any way, but obviously the Olympics gave it a real impetus to, to bring it forward. Um, and the industry love it. Um, if you want to go and have a look on the TFR website um, under the freight section and have a play around with it, it's really, really good. And it, it helped what um, companies can do is they can put in where their, their start point and their finish point, and it will route them according to this, uh, the size of the vehicle um, and also help them find a legal loading spot at the other end as well. Um, and we know that uh, the company that have developed this, a company called Pi, are also talking to... Um, other areas outside of London, so Kent County Council, I know, are looking at this. So we're hoping to, that this is going to be expanded and it will be, go beyond, uh, beyond London because, obviously, freight doesn't just start and end at boundaries. We, we, we go right across the country. So um, if we can make this national, that would be brilliant. Um, I think there's other kind of touchy-feely stuff as well, like better working relationships within organisations, between customers and suppliers. And, you know, the profile of the freight and logistics industry has never been this high. We've got a really good working relationship with TfL. We plan to continue it, and I know that, that TfL plan to continue to work with us as well. And, and uh, finally, see our, our Love Logistics logo. This is our industry-wide campaign to tell the world how great the logistics industry is and all the things that we can do, because we need to tell the general public, you know, why are these trucks on the road? What's on the back of them? Well, actually... Everything you're wearing, everything you're sitting on, at some point has been on the back of a truck. So it's actually integral to our everyday lives. But also, it's a really good industry to work in. So we're trying to get through to school leavers as well and say, actually, have you thought about a career in logistics? Um, and if anybody thinks logistics is really dull, you know, we've got some great videos on there. There's one um, with our one of our members um, moving uh, Neo, who were doing a, a putting on a concert, and they were moving him from one venue to the next after they'd done a gig. Um, and DHL have just uh, released a report on the fashion industry because they do a lot of fashion logistics as well. In fact, they are a sponsor of London Fashion Week, which is happening later on. So if anybody thinks that logistics isn't sexy, we're really trying to change that image. So thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you very much, very much for those presentations. Um, I hope that's given you a, a bit of a flavour of how transport in London changed during the Olympics and also, in a sense, what lay behind the fact that the 97% uh, of pessimists were proved wrong in terms of all the thoughtfulness that went in, both in terms of infrastructure uh, and also in terms of management and so on. What I thought I'd do first of all, actually, just to ask whether anybody wanted to comment on any, because you hadn't heard each other's presentations before, does anybody want to comment or pick up anything that anybody else said? Other than oh, it's cool. really good to hear what, what uh, sort of like the, the freight industry think, because we were, we were really sort of like chuffed with it, but the freight industry and your members being chuffed is um, particularly about sort of sustaining nighttime deliveries is, is really good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I think actually some of the, 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 the other thing I want to say about the, the modelling work as well, it's quite interesting seeing about the change in traffic speeds. And I, I wonder whether there was a slight increase, the increase seemed to be perhaps if there was one more at the night time period or the shoulders of the day, and, and it seemed to kind of decrease against last year in the middle of the day. And I wonder whether, you know, our, a lot of our members did shift their usual um, daytime movements to the nighttime period, so whether that helped with that smoothing out. Well, um, yes, that, so the, the pitch shifting or the demand change uh, could be a factor, but um, um, so I think as uh, Michelle mentioned, actually, so we observed that there's, uh, so the traffic is flowing, was flowing better, I mean, during the games compared with uh, last year. 
But the thing is that actually, um, because because the, the the system itself actually the traffic transfer network itself is a, is a very complicated system. So we 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 note that there is a change or there is an there was an improvement. But the thing is that I mean the the more important things actually is that why what what caused it <laughs> and what's the reason for it. So I mean this is subject to uh, uh, this is actually uh, 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 an area that we have to further to do some more research to understand. I mean what causing what. I mean and then so we can try to learn from it. So to and then try to apply it how to manage our network better in the future. I guess we've got, I mean, broadly speaking, there were three groups I think we talked about, haven't we? There were, on, in, in terms of people travelling London, there were the, the people who work in London, uh, and what you were saying is, John, apart from the normal holidays, etc., most of those people may have flexed their time a bit, or possibly their routing on the network, but broadly were kept carrying on with their, their usual commuting patterns. But it's the people that came in one to three days a week that were more flexible, which may be a more likely people who came in to meet other friends or to go shopping or something. And the fact that was down may correlate a bit with concern, at least of, of some shopkeepers, that the trade was down. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is you know, very, Conjecture. very early days. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think, yeah, there, there's going to be more work. I think the panel, the panel survey stuff should be really interesting because, of course, you know, capturing behavioral data is great, but the kind of the motivations and, in a sense, you know, the, the people who don't, Travel do you know? I mean, they do disappear from the oyster data set. I mean, so it, there's there's a there's a lot of inference going on as to whether they stayed at home or actually left. So I think, you know, it, it's early days yet, but it does seem like the message got through to people who had a lot more discretion mm. over what they were doing that they should really, you know, make plans. Whereas people who had to commute, they had to commute. Now they may have changed their route, and you know, one of the sort of really frustrating things is that. You know, in Oyster data, you just have the origin and the destination, um, and so if somebody is still following the same, is still making that same trajectory, it's very, very hard to see if you know they switched to using a different line, making a connection in a different place. I know that some of the the, the survey data that uh, Lauren has mentioned to me is that was taken sort of in the in the station suggests that people did change their um, interchanges quite dramatically, but that's something that I just can't see. So. Um, something John just said uh, gives me a chance to make another little, uh, not exactly plug, but we're doing another piece of work which isn't ready to report yet, which is looking at the, the non-transport impacts of the games on the lives of Londoners. So we're looking at how patterns of um, uh, mobile phone use, internet use, uh, patterns of electricity consumption, patterns of water consumption, etc., uh, visits to West End theatres and so on, to try and get a picture more broadly uh, about how Londoners' lives change and, and maybe fill in in an inferential way, filling some of the gaps from the other data and so on. And I think there are some other social impact, for example, environment or, or safety. Yeah. I mean, that this is something that I think we also have to look, look yeah. into. I mean, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, right, we've had a say, but, but the idea really was to give you an opportunity uh, to ask any questions or make any comments you'd like. Obviously, it won't be uh, quite as focused as it might have been if the whole system collapsed for two weeks. But uh, um, so let's let's celebrate the fact that it didn't. But um, you know we we have expertise here in the university, and obviously uh, Michelle representing the experience and knowledge at TfL. Natalie, the particular example of the freight industry. So questions or comments would be welcomed. Right, one in the front. Would you like to say? I know who you are, but would you like to say? <laughs> I didn't plant. 
I didn't find the question. Uh, Elizabeth Gilliard, Independent Transport Commission. Uh, it's, it's really a follow-up to Dr Chow with Natalie's question about that observable slowing of traffic around 6 in the morning and 4 till 6. Is that slowing significant? And if so, is it significant enough to have accident and noise reduction benefits? Well, uh, is it significant enough to... Yeah. To have accident and noise reduction benefits. Very often at night, you get a lot more collisions and a lot of noise because the freight traffic moves very fast because it can. Yeah, if yeah, the, yeah. Freight, the overnight freight levels go up enough, now, particularly in the key areas, it could, could have Yes. Benefit. Now, this is an interesting question. Now, we haven't looked into this, actually, but, but this is you know, an area that uh, uh, we can explore. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. That's given us some more research. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because we, uh, Just want yeah, a sponsor for it now. Yes. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Hi, um, Liz Ab. Um, question is around capacity utilization. Um, so I understand from operations management classes I've taken in the past that as you kind of approach 100% utilization, you get really long queuing times and things really slow down. Um, how do the Olympics compare to other peak periods? Was was the system more loaded than it has been in other times for other events or other parts of the year like Christmas shopping? Who would that like sounds like a, is that a public transit question or is that well a it could be question? both, yeah. both. Oh, yeah I, I mean I, I more, I'm maybe more interested in the public transit question because I don't know how you would necessarily know about the road capacity but but from a uh, I mean I, I don't have because I'm essentially looking at behavior not the sort of the supply side I can't give you a, a sort of a firm answer to that but I mean certainly some of the what some of the slides that I was showing suggest is that um, the kind of the drop was steepest during the kind of the peak rush hour. And so that's obviously going to have, you know, that, that's going to take off that, that peak um, that you're talking about where you do get the long backups and the long queues. And they say, I'm sorry, you know, because of overcrowding, you can't get onto the, you know, onto the Victoria line uh, at Highbury and Islington, that sort of thing. So, um, and I think to me, the thing that was so interesting is that at the same time as the transit network was coping with these you know, huge numbers of spectators and games makers. Um, I mean, it really suggests that it's a quite, uh, I mean, it's, it's a significant behavioral change, but it doesn't require everybody to change absolutely everything about how they get around the city. Like, it's a very, I mean, it is a, it is a complex system. It's adapting. So, you know, if you go one day and you can't get on, you're like, well, you know, I'll, I'll travel a bit later. Um, so it's, it's beautifully self-organizing in that respect. So I think that sort of slight spreading out in the, in the rush hour and the fact that it was, I mean, a lot of the people were traveling, you know, I think a lot of the people who, who were here as visitors for the Olympics were staying in central London and traveling out. So in a way, although they were adding to the ridership, they were adding it to it in the, in the reverse direction from where we normally have the, the congestion, I think. That's my, that's my sense. So I think, I think Lauren wants to um, ask because she, she, she's been, look, she, she's been looking at the, the data on a daily basis and particularly looking at that profile change of the data okay. over the day. You can tell people who yeah, you are. Hi, I'm Lauren Sager-Weinstein. I'm at Transport for London. I'm the head of analytics, so we've been uh, giving John a good data stream. 
And one of the things that we did during the games was look at the sort of patterns of travel on a sort of a daily basis. Um, pretty much as soon as the peak finished, we were asked how did things go. And what we looked at is we looked at the sort of long-term um, profiles that we, we didn't do as much in-depth work, and that's what we're teasing out now, and that's the sort of the oyster usage over time, and that's what we were giving to Don, and we're also doing some look at that. But what we were able to look at very quickly is what does the shape of the peak look like in the morning? Um, we had the sort of a set of not only our oyster users, but people who are traveling on magnetic tickets, and the challenge with magnetic tickets is, is that you don't really see any patterns. You see an entry here and an exit somewhere else, but you can't link it. But unfortunately, um, as John mentioned, everybody who got there, uh, if you were lucky enough to get a, a ticket to uh, the Olympics, you got your games travel card, so that was magnetic. And we have a substantial number of people who travel on magnetic tickets anyway, um, and many of whom come into the National Rail um, stations and then change onto the underground because they have travel cards that are magnetic, which makes it even more complicated to look at some of those behavioral changes because you're, you can't even see what a magnetic ticket is doing um, much less if it's the same person using a magnetic ticket today in the games versus before, or it was someone on a games travel card. So it makes our problem very complicated in a detailed level. What we could do is look at the peaks overall, and what we did see is that um, people did were much more efficient in traveling and smoothing out their travel in the peaks, and so you had um, a smoothing of the peak, you had a third sort of mini peak at night when people were traveling across the network, and a very big increase sort of in the, in the middle of the day in your inner peak. And um, that's how you can sort of get an efficient use across the network. And you have record ridership as well. So that's certainly, um, there's a lot of, of thinking about how do we encourage people to travel where there is capacity on the network and sort of discourage it at the busiest, most congested times, but not overall, because we do want people to travel. OK, thank you. If you can see Lauren's face, she doesn't like magnetic cards. She was pulling faces with <laughs> magnetic cards. Um, just before the next question, I mean, one of the points that was raised just now was about how do the Olympics compare with something like uh, the extra load at Christmas. And I'm just wondering, Natalie, I mean, from the freight point of view, um, I mean, obviously Christmas is, a, is an annual event, generally. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, therefore, is, are people very well repaired and, uh, and so on? Or because of the nature of the Olympics, do you think people started thinking more fundamentally than they had done before about making adjustments? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the Olympics is, is the, the busiest period for the logistics industry. Um, and they geared up that from, I mean, they're actually starting to look at it now. Um, in fact, I was in Tesco's the other day um, in my shorts and T-shirt getting stuff for a barbecue and I saw chocolate Santas, which has kind of horrified me. <laughs> but um, so, so, so the, Olympic, the, the Christmas stock is, is going in already and we'll start to see that, that, that going fairly soon. I think the way that our members looked at the Olympics was... Um, was originally was, was, was 100 days of Christmas, of Christmas preparation. Um, although it wasn't 100 days of disruption, you looked at that whole period from the Queen's Diamond Jubilee right through to the very end. It was, you know, it was, it was quite a few weeks of adjustment that were, were needed. So um, I think, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of our members did treat it like they do, the, like they do for the Christmas period. I think, it's I think it's important to remember, though, and I think it's a point that John made, when schools are in and when schools are out. Because, yeah. like, at Christmas time, you've got lower levels of traffic on the road network. That's why we don't charge congestion charging during the Christmas period, because you don't need to. It's not as congested. And you get, like, more visitors. So it's, so it's treating different parts of the year differently and recognising they're different. I know you've got to deliver things. I wish you'd do it after 
bonfire night yeah. and not before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it was a Christmas present, not having to pay the congestion charge. That was the and, logic for it. And the other thing, of course, <laughs> the other thing, of course, in summer is you don't have snow. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the other thing that really does impact deliveries a lot more for the Christmas period is, is weather, um, high winds, snow, all of those things that can affect um, the movement of, of, of large vehicles. Mm. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, Michelle, you, you were talking sorry, about... Sorry, say, just tell everybody who you are. Please. Sorry, uh, Liron Shaw from the Bartlett School of Planning. Um, Michelle, you were talking about uh, sustaining the, the behavioural change and keeping the, the excitement and perhaps also the more uh, forgiving approach of people during the Olympics, perhaps the behavioral changes sometimes, knowing that it's, it's for a limited uh, period of time. And also, I mean, there were obviously a lot of means in place like, you know, open gates at the javelin train or, or even the, the game makers uh, keeping the crowd calm for, for an hour waiting to board a train. Um, you know, um, perhaps more um, leisure commuters than people traveling to work uh, normally, so maybe more forgiving people. The question is, how, how is that maintained uh, beyond the Olympics where, where people are maybe less uh, accommodating? It's, it's, it's a good question because certainly sort of like that attitude went down well and the sort of like happy smiley faces of people giving help to customers and treating customers as customers and wanting them to welcome them to London was, was very well appreciated and I think helped also in running the systems and, and we want to be able to capture that. Uh, we want to be able to sort of capture that not just within TfL but the volunteering um, process altogether. But but the, the travel ambassadors in TfL are saying um, we are looking at how we can sort of like maintain them. Um, they're all TfL staff. Um, most of them sort of had day jobs, sort of doing accounts or sort of you know like paying our wages or whatever, or or sort of like people like me, you know, run planning. But I can still go and um, tell somebody how to help get around the system and look happy and smiley. Um, but sort of you know how how can we sort of like use that as part of sort of staff development to to allow you to go out on the network so many days a year to help either with events that will arise because we did use them for Notting Hill as well. Um, but other events that might arise. But as I said, one of, one, of the, one of the more focused things we could use them for, or use ourselves for, I should say, is, is when we do the, the line upgrades. So if we have to close a station or we have to close a bit of a line and we want to use this, this whole TDM approach, we give advance notice, we sort of like put on the um, journey planner different ways in which you can avoid that area. We have people out. Um, on the area, we work with the freight, you know, continuing with those um, governance arrangements that we had in place to explain what's going to happen during that period, uh, because we might have to run more buses or we might have to do this, but getting those people out as well to help explain to customers what's going on and, and, how, and how they can sort of like plan their journeys differently or make different decisions. Now, now I know during the Olympics, everybody was happy. It was absolutely fabulous to actually deal with happy smiley customers as well because they're all going to the games and they're all excited and it might be you know on a cold November night when it's pouring outside and someone gets to the stage and they oh no you've closed it that that we'll need some more training into dealing with sort of like cross customers but 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 the idea is is, is how, how can you continue that because that's seen and Vernon Everett who's our managing director of sort of like marketing and communications sees that as a really big way forward for, for TfL to improve the services that we give to customers. Um, so yes, we, we want to do that. Okay, there's one down there. Just while that's, I mean, I, I mean, from my 
perception. The fact that everybody in TfL was out there actually talking to people and so on is very valuable in its own right, because I think often if people are mainly in an office, the only things that ever filter through are the complaints. They don't get a sense of, uh, of perhaps the totality of, of customers and so on. And I think there's a valuable experience yeah. in that. I mean, we, we have got a programme of trying to get sort of particularly senior people doing frontline experience anyway, sort of go and doing four days, different parts of the organisation, be it in a bus garage, be it sort of like, you know, uh, taxi licensing stuff or whatever. Um, but but so certainly, certainly understanding how the business works, but more importantly, having this face-to-face -face, um, dialogue with customers, because that's who we're here to help. Okay, thank you. Uh, Tim Chatterton, University of the West of England. Um, looking at where lessons might be transferred elsewhere, um, a lot of this has been very London focused and sort of very focused on the sort of extreme conditions of the Olympics. And I was wondering if anything stood out from the things either um, FTA, FTA have done or TFL have done that are sort of no-brainers that actually people should be thinking about in transport situations all over the country in sort of business-as-usual situations? I, th I think a, a very simple one is organisations who are responsible for transport talking together and actually working together. It's just that, that communication. That's certainly one thing that we want to continue. The sort of, we, we had formal sort of communication with the different organisations and that translated down to sort of um, communications between say different operators at stations. If you say take our mainline stations, you know, we have staff there, there are sort of um, network rail staff, there are sort of bus companies, people talking together in terms of how to sort of manage that as a, as a whole, and that can apply anywhere in the country. That's a big, big sort of like lesson learned. And, and when something happens, I think as you, you alluded to, you didn't have to put your sort of um, coordination thing to, to, to the real test, but if, say, something happens, such as, you know, when we've got bad snow and we haven't got enough salt, but we will have salt because we've now got stores because we planned for that. But, you know, when, when an incident happens, if, if you've got those communications in place and you are talking to each other, it's far easier to, to respond. And, and I think you can apply that across the country. Yeah, and I, think, and I mentioned about the, the CSSC hub, about the cross-sector security communications. Um, that's obviously started in London, and the plan for 2013 is to roll that out to other cities across the country so that we can have that same network of, 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 um, of or partnership working between different organisations across other cities and also nationally by linking those cities together as well. So that's something that, that is planned um, in time, of course, for the Commonwealth Games in 2014, which Glasgow is hosting, obviously not quite on the scale of the Olympics, but that will itself have its challenges, and we want to make sure, and I'm sure that Glasgow City Council and, and the organisers are looking very closely at London to make sure that they learn some of those lessons. What we need to make sure that they're very clear on is the fact that transport works, the fact it was a success, wasn't luck. Don't think you can't do anything. The reason it worked was because an awful lot of work went in by an awful lot of people. So, and we need to make sure that happens there as well. And obviously the other thing, I, I know I keep banging on about that nighttime deliveries, but again, the work that we had been doing, um, there was a project called the Quiet Deliveries Demonstration Scheme that we did in partnership with the Noise Abatement Society and was funded by DFT. Um, and that project was launched about a year or so ago now. Um, and that was actually a, a series of trials across, the, across, well, it was across England. It didn't go outside of England, but it was across England. And, and, of course, all of those lessons can be translated into any other urban environment as well. So, um, so I think there are a lot of things that have been done in London, and obviously London being the biggest urban centre in, in the UK, it's a great place to trial things and to test things first. 
Um, but there's no reason why a lot of that can't be translated to other towns and cities across the country. Okay, let's just take one over here. Hi, uh, Steve Bagg from IBM. Um, there, there's quite a lot of analytics that's been done um, sort of pre, during, and, and I guess post the Olympics, although we've only just come out of it. Um, my question is, are there any new data sets that have come out of the analysis that's been done or, or new aggregated data sets that have come out? Because I, I think as a legacy, that's, that's quite an important thing too. Let's work our way along. Now maybe I can I can uh, give some comments on on because because I've been I I'm looking on the supply side so I'm looking at on the uh, performance of of Blue Network. Now currently not what uh, uh, I've been looking at is is the journey time data that we got from uh, uh, the mass matching uh, license plate number what we call AMPL automatic limited plate uh, recognition system. So uh, uh, now the thing is that so when we analyze the performance of a transfer system, so apart from the, the speed or journey time, etc., so we also need to have uh, information about the traffic volume and density, etc. So now this would be something that we are going to look at next because 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 uh, now again, uh, so we are working with uh, TFL, so we could do have uh, access to. Um, some uh, urban loop detector data, for example. So we got loop detector data under this good signal control systems. Now, so what the, the good things about uh, this uh, loop detector data is that they give us a lot of information about the distribution of traffic across the road, so that we can have a bigger, better pictures uh, uh, about uh, 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 of the performance systems. Okay. Now, these are some uh, traditional uh, 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 data from fixed sensors. Okay. Now, uh, potential opportunities, now we are trying to get some, uh, perhaps uh, in the future, now we are still in process, uh, so if we can get uh, some access to some vehicles, for example, some vehicles uh, such as uh, Truck Master or even IBIS, okay? So if we can get some, some vehicles uh, 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 data from, from those uh, uh, users which are, who are equipped with uh, GPS devices, so uh, uh, because of the coverage of this uh, uh, GPS devices or, or cell phone, et cetera, so we could potentially have, uh, uh, can have a larger, more comprehensive data set, and also we can have uh, more comprehensive pictures of traffic so that we can understand, have a better, better understanding of the behavior of the transfer system uh, during, before and after these kind of events. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, the I mean, the most exciting thing uh, from a research standpoint is 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 the Oyster Card data set. Although, as as I've said and as Lauren pointed out, that's really just a partial view. So I think you know the big challenge moving forward is to try to integrate and then try to build some way of understanding you know what did happen with those magnetic cards um, and and sort of building that into the picture. Um, and the and the other big challenge is you know uh, it's it's very easy to focus on the on the sort of the tube, the DLR, and, and the overground because we always do get that nice, you know, tap in, tap out. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the bus service is, I mean, it regularly carries more people than, the, than, you know, all the rail put together. And historically, that's been somewhat, uh, I guess, neglected, you could say, just because there was no way of figuring out where somebody got on a bus, you know, because there was no locational data for the bus you know, or clearly where they got off. So that's, uh, you know, that's the next, um, in terms of kind of the, the big data challenges for the, you know, for the coming year, it's really trying to make sense of that, I think, and, and see, what we, see how far we can get. 
without hogging the, the microphone, just another just sort of personal interest, really. Uh, my understanding was that a lot of the the limitations on, on well, I wouldn't say night deliveries, because night suggests sort of two in the morning, but I think evening deliveries are the thing that, and it's a semantic thing, isn't it? But I think people are a lot more open to evening deliveries, say, eight or nine o'clock at night, which is, again, outside the peak travel period. Uh, but, but my understanding was that it was actually um, boroughs that were imposing some of those limitations. Is, is that right? Or what is it that, what's the barrier? Yeah, there's a, a, a variety of, um, of different restrictions that can prevent nighttime deliveries. One of the main ones is planning. Um, and quite often, um, as part of planning permission, um, a clause is put in restricting deliveries at night and you know, sometimes at weekends as well. Um, and I have to say that I think that some retailers quite too readily accept those restrictions just to get the permission through without actually really thinking about how the deliveries are going to are going to occur and it's for those in logistics to worry about that um, so that's one mate one big area um, another maybe because um, there have been complaints in the past and noise abatement notice has been issued to the premises um, by the borough by environmental health um, it could be because there's a local agreement between the retailer and local residents and, and actually in a lot of cases the restrictions are actually self-imposed which made it a lot easier in, in, in a number of situations to actually to deliver and you're quite right, not just in the nighttime period. And actually, what was most used were, just, were the shoulders of the day. So it was just earlier in the morning, later in the evening. Um, one, of, one, of the, one of the issues that we do have is, is we would perhaps like to get deliveries in a little bit earlier in the morning. Um, and what we have in, in London at, at 7 a.m., well, finishing at 7 a.m., is, is the ending of, of something called the London Lorry Control Scheme, which is operated by London councils on behalf of the boroughs. Now, it doesn't ban no. lorries but it does restrict the roads that they can use. So it does mean, in some cases, quite large detours, which, of course, then take away the benefits of getting from A to B a lot quicker. So there are, there's certainly evidence where some companies will not come in until 7 a.m. because that's when those restrictions are relaxed. So it's weighing up, do you get the benefits from delivering at night because you can get from A to B a lot quicker, or is that taken away because of things like the London Lorry Control Scheme and perhaps other restrictions as well? Um, agree with that. Sorry, go on. Can I, can I just say, in terms of, sort of like data, slightly different sort of data, um, but use of social media and, and what have you, um, was that within TFL we sort of set up an internal, um, uh, like a Yammer site for, for, for people who are out there um, working as travel ambassadors to talk to each other and to give out information. And it wasn't sort of uh, managed by TFL, it was sort of set up by TFL so that people could sort of send messages to other people about what was going on um, on the network. You know, it started off as a social thing saying, God, it's boring here, or it's great here, and what are you doing? But, but then it got to a stage where people were sort of like putting information on, so there's a real problem here, you know, it'd be good if so-and-so did such and such. So it's sort of, it's data coming from people who are doing stuff that then can be used to inform others, and that's another one of those things that we want to um, consider the legacy for. Mm -hmm. I'll take uh, a question down here. Stefania from, from Westminster University. Uh, I would like to ask, okay, we have spoke about uh, uh, the challenge of uh, capacity and congestion. Uh, I would like to ask how TFL manage the challenge of uh, uh, accessibility for uh, people with disability and uh, wheelchair users. Um, uh, well, a lot of work was done, and Alice is, Alice is here, who sort of like um, has been very much involved in it. A lot, a lot of work has, was done in terms of like 
um, improving the, the physical part of the network across TfL, perhaps not as much as people would like to see, but big, big like improvements have been put up, put in place with the bus network itself being accessible, lots of new accessible stations. There's a lot more that we can do, um, but in planning for the Olympics, specific things that we did do, which, which are new, um, and, and I don't know if you saw the press release yesterday, which referred to them, was that where we have actually um, allowed people to get down onto platforms um, in, in certain stations, but then they couldn't get onto the train, and actually putting in sort of like physical permanent measures to raise the platforms is, is costly and difficult. It was the use of sort of like temporary ramps, and it was something that you know TfL was um, concerned about using, but sort of like uh, used at 16 stations throughout the Olympics, and, and that's one thing that actually made a big big difference and we announced yesterday that we would continue those do a review period see how well they work in normal circumstances um, we continue to to recognize we've got to make further physical improvements um, to our network but uh, that tends to be constrained by finances going forward but, but things like that are a big plus but also the staffing again having more staff from different organizations at stations who talk to each other being able to ensure that um, when people want to catch a train, get on a train, get on a bus, whatever, there are, there, are, there are people there to help them and there's some coordination of that. That makes a big difference. And it's those sorts of things that we're trying to focus more on um, over, over the next few years when we know we haven't got lots of extra money to do things more than uh, we're trying to do at present. But you will see so like more accessible stations when the Crossrail stations, etc., are complete and Victoria's done and uh, some of the other big programs that we have in place. Okay, thank you. Um, no, sorry. I'm, I'm afraid, uh, logistically, I'm responsible for getting you across the road safely uh, to the wine before the wine, uh, the white wine starts getting warm uh, and the red wine starts getting too cold, depending on the weather conditions. So I need to draw it to a close there, but thank you all very much indeed. Um, I'm just going to thank our speakers, but also thank, uh, as Michelle did, many other people from TfL, a number of whom are here. Lauren spoke briefly, Claire at the front, who was mentioned on one of the slides, and others as well. So thank you all very much for your contributions, many of which are unrecognised outside the organisation, but crucial. And also to thank uh, Andy and John from within UCL to show the sort of work that's going on here. If they had more time, their immediate plea would be for more data. So if you've got new data, they're the people that would love to, to get their hands on it. Uh, and also uh, to thank Natalie, give us the perspective of the freight industry, and particularly Michelle, to give us the overview. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you.